Dana Davenport, and welcome to Finding Common Ground, a new show on Naperville Community Television focused on important current events and how they impact our diverse population. We are many voices of one community, often with strong opinions on every side of an issue. Here, through courageous conversation, in the interest of discovering collaborative solutions, we hope to find our common ground. And I'm Rebecca Malaki Meslin. In this episode, we'll speak with leaders of recent rallies and protests, as well as those who began their activism in the 1960s. We'll discuss what has changed and what remains the same in this fight for justice. True change for people of our nation has always come down to a vocal opposition, often composed of young people, making their voices heard. Women's suffrage, labor unions, the Vietnam War, and civil rights. These movements, this activism, is what has shaped our country's history and improved the lives of its people. Right now, the anti-racist movement is activism driving real change in our country. Joining us now are India Smith-Johnson and Elijah Trannon. Um, how are you all doing? Pretty good. Good. Amazing. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having us. We're yes. thrilled to have you here and to talk about some of your recent activities as far as activism in the local community and beyond. Before we get to that, can you introduce yourself? Tell us a little bit about who you are. India? Sure. Um, my name is India Smith-Johnson. I just graduated Naperville Central, so I'm class of 2020. Congratulations. Uh, in high school, I was a tri-sport athlete. I did cross-country gymnastics and track. Um, now I do a lot of art. I'm a freelance artist and I play music. I like to sing and I play guitar as well. Awesome. Elijah? I'm Elijah Trannon. Um, I play baseball uh, for the Naperville Renegades and I wrestle at Naperville Central. I'm a junior. Um, in my free time, I usually uh, go skateboarding with my friends. That's what <laughs> I like to do. So what was your reaction to George Floyd's murder? I mean, it's obviously very heartbreaking, um, but my reaction was one mostly planted on anger um, because of all of the things that I've seen personally happen to my family and to my friends and to people in my community. Um, it was a feeling of just, I mean, general upset because there are things that are happening similar to that right where we live and there wasn't so much being done about it yet even though um, both Elijah and I have been working to get uh, progress made on that during the school year so my reaction of, was one of anger and just I needed to do something so that's I mean I I became really active afterwards yeah, yeah. yeah my reaction was similar to India's um Initially, I was just mad at the situation. I didn't really know what to do, but then I wanted to look to see what the next steps are to further the movement in general and just to, to create change. So we know that you guys have participated and in some instances really organized rallies. Talk to us a little bit about what that was like for you and, and how you went about that. Uh to be entirely honest, it's very similar to event planning. Um, it's a little bit stressful, especially the day of. Uh, but of the four rallies, protests that I have been a part of and helped plan, uh, they've all been generally very successful and they haven't ended in violence um, except for the protests that I w attended on the, I believe it was June 1st. June 1st, um, yeah. mm -hmm. But I strongly believe that the protest and rally portion had nothing to do with the looting and rioting that happened afterwards. That's true. I would say that um, that was overshadowed 
um, there were people who came in um, who were not a part of your organization, not a part of the group, mm -hmm. um, who were not really organizers, but took advantage of the situation. And I the media also, um, some some parts of the media showed that that it was the protesters that turned into looting, which right. was so not true. Because I was at the the first protest during the day, and I actually like led it, and at. 5.30, I believe it was, we sent everyone home, So and everyone listened, so um, the people that came after that had nothing to do with it, yeah. or had nothing to do with the protests. Yeah. Um, there's a lot that goes into planning a rally. I yeah. think sometimes people think you are incited by what you see on television or what people are talking about or right. an incident that happens at school mm -hmm. and then you just run into the street or you just run and we're all going to meet up at the park or we're all going to just show up here. Can you talk a little bit about um, some of the inner workings or the backstory of how we get into planning and organizing a, a rally that is successful? Well, a lot of people um, wanted to do something after they saw that all these people were hurting over the same thing. And a lot of people wanted to help but didn't know how to. So once we started creating like ideas about like protests and how we could show them like that our movement is peaceful and it is for positive change. It's not just to break in and loot. That's not what we are doing. So after people started seeing that we're peaceful and we were, um, we're all coming together and we're united, uh, more people wanted to come join. Mm -hmm. So. I think for a lot of the protests and rallies, what you just described actually does happen. People just say, I'm going to meet at this time and place with the, these group of people and we are going to march. And the intent is usually peaceful, but the the rallies and protests, the marches on a larger scale are usually the ones that catch the legislative attention that we want to see. Because once we have our goal and once we have the speakers talking about what changes and what policies we want to see, that's when we start actually seeing the change. So, I mean, in my experience, the success comes from working with the park department to get your permits, working with the, um, the police department so that you have your, you know, support from them because that's a huge part of it. I mean, if you want to see changes in your municipal police department, you need to speak with them to get those changes. So part of having a successful event is talking to those people and making sure that they know this is a peaceful movement. This is what we want to do. And this is what we want to see after we do this so that we have this huge group of people that is, you know, showing that they want the same thing. Cause as Elijah just said, we're all hurting over this same thing. So right. we need to do something about it. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, the success comes from having all of those people to say the same thing and say it to the people that need to hear it. So, you know, obviously we're talking with you all, you're young people. I think a lot of times um, older generations underestimate what young people are capable of. Um, so, and I'm thinking about how you're working with friends and peers, but also people of different generations potentially. How, who were you talking to first? Were you talking with friends? Were you talking with peers? Were you talking with members of maybe organizations that you're a part of to kind of I, again, get that groundswell of, of support and also just that conversation going. Uh, I started talking with the NAACP. I joined in maybe November, December, um, after my father had an incident with the Naperville Police Department. So I started getting a little bit active there. Uh, but 
the first people that I started talking to was them because they were the people who I was like, Hey, I need speakers for this event that, um, I helped someone organize. And that was probably the first protest that I started organizing. Um, so those, those were the people that I talked to. I also spoke with, um, you know, activists around the area as well, because I wanted to extend my reach as far as I could to get as many people in as possible. Um, for me, um, we created some groups on social media to kind of bring everyone together and um, bounce ideas back and forth off of each other about the protests and like how to run them and the, the different steps we had to go through. So we made like a few groups to try to just like get more people together. What have you found to be most challenging about rallying a bunch of kids together, a bunch of young people? Um, sometimes they say, whenever you're trying to do anything, event planning, right, it can be like herding cats um, and there can be a lot of frustrations. Is there anything that you want to share that that was frustrating or, or complicated or something you didn't expect in, in doing this? Well, um, there was a protest that I organized on, I think, the 27th with a really great group of people. But we had one member that wanted to do something different because we had uh, intended in in, uh, initially on marching, um, but we didn't have the permits in time and it just wasn't a good idea for the safety of the people coming. So we said, hey, we're not going to march. And this one person wanted to march still. And so we had some conflict there. Mm -hmm. um, so having rogue members um, be a part of organizing or even just attending. I mean, that's the, that's the negative thread that people lead from rioting and protesting. Right. Um, so that's definitely a challenge. It's also hurting people back and telling everyone to disperse because you don't always get people that are going to listen. I know the protests that uh, I helped organize on June 4th, mm -hmm. we had an issue where we had everyone leave and we wanted everyone out by 5.30. The most people left, but then we had two groups gathered on each side of um, uh, Washington and where police had barricaded. So I mean, that's never a good situation to see when you have a bunch of protesters in a crowd faced up against police. That's something that really isn't going to end well. Um, so you have to have people that are going to be able to disperse. So that was definitely a challenge. But we did get everyone dispersed. So it ended up being positive. The worst part about the protest is probably the the one person that could mess it up, like mm -hmm. the risk. The wild card. Yeah, yes. exactly. <laughs> like the one person can throw a brick through a window and the whole oh, day, then mm -hmm. all the media talks about is that this was looting and that all these people came here to loot when that's not at all what we we're going to say. But at the same time, um, you said what what's the hardest part. I feel like I was surprised by the amount of people that actually listened and like were respectful and like when we said okay we're gonna go this way and then turn this way like they listened and everyone just did what they're supposed to so um all of them stayed for the most part peaceful yeah i think also it's controlling the narrative that's difficult because i mean not all media coverage is going to give you the same th the same you know, viewpoint that you right. want to show. Mm -hmm. Not everyone that's talking about the protest is going to say the same positive things. I had to explain to several of my friends why they need to be more concerned about the fact that a man was killed than businesses who have insurance being looted right. because things can be replaced and people can't. Right. So what we're talking about this whole episode is really truly about activism. And, you know, we're so impressed with everything that you both are doing. 
how long have you considered yourself an activist? I, I, I can't imagine that it was just because of George Floyd's murder. Um, so talk to us a little bit about kind of where you think you started on this journey. Uh, probably since November, we had a, uh, really horrible incident happen at Naperville Central, um, with one of our freshmen. And I mean, that's, that sparked this, the same feeling of anger and, you know, up, like upset, um, in our school. Uh, and I heard we, we gathered the Black Latino Association and then there were, I think most of the colored kids at our school, um, came into that room and we packed it full and we ran out of time to talk about even what happened because of all of the stories that everyone was sharing that had just gone unreported. All of these incidents happening in our school that were just like, they never talked about for, yeah. I mean, a variety of reasons. So, I mean, that was probably the first time that I started, you know, working, you know, working to get some of these things changed, working to see some policies put in place and some implicit bias training. Um, so I got to, you know, I started working with the principal with, um, the inclusivity director of the district. Um, Elijah can speak to that too, cause he did a lot of that work with me. Mm -hmm. Um, but I think that's probably, that's probably the start where I would have called myself an activist. Yeah, it's around the same time for me because, um, things have been happening to me at Neverville Central since I was a freshman. Um, just little things that weren't big enough to actually do something about it. So after the incident happened around November with one of my good friends was the one that it happened to, um, we were kind of like, well, what can we do? So we brought a group of people together and we started getting ideas of different stuff to do. We started meeting during the mornings and then we came up with these circle talk ideas and we've been working really hard on that. Um, me and another girl my age um, went to a training to learn how to do like circle talks and how to lead them. So that's, that's when it, it really started for me and it took off. Who motivates you in terms of um, the activism that you do? You know, where do you get your support? Where do you where do you lean on? Who do you lean on? Uh, because it's not easy. Anytime you're trying to effectuate change, swim upstream, it's not easy. So, so where do you get your motivation or inspiration from? I get mine from my family because they're all very smart and um, they love talking. So they definitely <laughs> help me with my arguments and my. They help me learn different points and see stuff from different perspectives too, because we don't always see everything eye to eye. But they're they're a big part of where I am today. Um, my father is definitely a huge motivator because he, I mean, he's joined the NAACP and brought me to one of the meetings. Um, he had been a member before, but he had stopped being so active once uh, he started uh, raising my brother and I. So um, uh, my dad is one of my biggest supports and he's one of my biggest drives because of what's happened to him here. Uh, and then my, someone I consider a mentor, she's flutters around at all of the protests and she's always moving around the scene. Um, and so she's been helping me a lot with, you know, with being an activist and with learning how to organize protests and organize even just like my goals and my thoughts too. Yeah. What are you most proud of out of all the things that you've done so far? And what are you looking forward to doing in the future? Um, things like this. <laughs> I mean, yeah. having the opportunity to speak on platforms is huge for me. Um, being in, in media is really important to me because it makes, makes me feel like my voice is being heard. Um, 
But I'm looking forward to being in actual meetings with legislators. I'm looking forward to pursuing a poli-sci major, major at the U University of Iowa and continuing to you know, move up a little bit. I wanna keep doing this type of activism, but on larger scales where I'm really, really in there. Uh, for me, I, the, the big platforms are cool, like um, interviews and uh, like standing in front of everyone. But for me, my favorite part and what I'm most proud of is just changing one person's opinion, like just having one conversation with somebody and changing their mind. Like that's that's like that's the goal mm -hmm. to just change everyone's mind is one step at a time. Yeah, that's incredibly powerful, yeah. right? It's not necessarily about changing the masses, but mm -hmm. being able to just have that intimate conversation, exactly. connect with someone and. Make Show that them that we're human too. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you both so much for being a part of the show and we look forward to talking with you more in the future. Thank and you. We're gonna take a quick break and we'll be right back with more Finding Common Ground. In Naperville, we know that community counts. In fact, it's in our name. As Naperville Community Television, we have the privilege of showcasing what makes this award-winning city a wonderful place to raise a family, to make a living, and to enjoy life's journey. That's why it's our mission to capture on camera those special moments that connect us, those stories that impact our lives, stories you won't see anywhere else. So watch Naperville Community Television on air, online, and on social media. Welcome back to Finding Common Ground. We are joined now by two guests to whom activism is nothing new. Meet civil rights activist Thomas M. Armstrong and author of Autobiography of a Freedom Rider, My Life as a Foot Soldier for Civil Rights. In the segregated Deep South, when lynching and Klansmen and Jim Crow laws ruled, there stood a line of foot soldiers ready to sacrifice their lives for the right to vote, to enter rooms marked white only, and to live with simple dignity. They were called Freedom Riders, and Thomas M. Armstrong was one of them. Welcome. And welcome, Mr. Lewis Freeman. In 1980, Mr. Freeman became Southwest Airlines' first black pilot. And in 1992, he became the first black chief pilot of a major U.S. airline. But much earlier in his life, Mr. Freeman and his brother were part of a group of 10 students who were the first to be integrated at Woodrow Wilson High School in Dallas, Texas. Mr. Freeman, tell us about that experience. It was an interesting experience because we didn't want to go. <laughs> We were at James Madison High School. We were familiar with James Madison, and we did not want to experience that new experience. But they drew the line right down the middle of our street. The kids on one side of the street continued to go to Madison, and we ended up going to Woodrow. And the good thing about it was nobody was used to it anybody else so we spent a, a lot of that first year just feeling each other out mm -hmm. 
because the Caucasian kids weren't used to being around blacks at all. And being in a black community, we spent no time around whites. So we spent the whole year just filling each other out. Nothing bad happened. Nobody called you any names or anything, but they just kept watching you and wondering what you were going to do. And I was fortunate to have my brother there because there were only 10 of us and we were spread around the school that had almost 2,000 kids. Mm -hmm. So it was nice to have that support of that, that family member that you knew was on your side. And we were the first kids to integrate the band. And uh, it was really interesting when we went and tried out for the band, the band director asked who had been touring us. And we hadn't been tutored. What happened is all the black band directors would get together on Saturdays. They would take their best students to one of the high schools and they would work with that group, whether it was trombones or trumpets or whatever. Uh, one of the band directors would have his expertise there and he would work with that group. And then those group of students would come back to the high school and they would be the ones to work with the other students, and it made the band better. Mm -hmm. And we actually, because it was a black high school, the band was important. The band was, you know, to be in the band was something special. So everybody worked really hard, and we didn't want to give that up. Mm -hmm. That was one thing. We didn't want to give that up. But when we got over to Woodrow, we were wondering if we were going to be able to compete and we had heard all these stories about how all the white kids had tutors and all that stuff and taking special lessons. But we were able to compete. Our band director was the one that basically taught us our instruments and the other students and everybody working together built our skills. And we were just as good as everybody else. And that was... That was pretty impressive. Yeah. It really was. Mr. Armstrong. Yeah. You, yeah. Are, you are the same age <clears throat> as Emmett Till would have been. Yeah. Had he lived. Yeah. Um, and yet you started your civil rights work mm -hmm. at age 17. Uh, yes. Around Seriously. That, around that time? Seriously, Seriously. Around that time? Yes. Um, you were a foot soldier for civil rights. What exactly does that mean? Oh, uh, okay. Um, basically, just being on the front line, doing, uh, being able to, and willing, of course, to participate in all of the activities that was going on at that particular time. Uh, now, there was a whole range of them throughout my participation. Okay, there was sit-ins, uh, walk-in, wait, any kind of in you want to call it. <laughs> <laughs> we, we were doing it. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so being there and wanting to do it, okay, that was the main thing, being committed to the cause. Yeah. And uh, the more committed you are, uh, the more enabled you would become to do particular things. Many of the things uh, sometimes now. We have, up until Corona, of course, uh, the, uh, the virus, uh, we've had meetings uh, in Jackson, Mississippi annually, okay, mm -hmm. and we meet there, and uh, actually it's a Freedom Riders meeting, okay, right. but 
four or five of us who were together at all times in Mississippi in the 60s, we have a separate meeting. And every time the question comes up, why did we do what we did? Certain things, and nobody knows, yeah. because we wanted to do it. If we had to do it. We felt we had to do it, yes. And that foot soldier, uh, that's the attitude of a foot soldier. Mr. Freeman, we were talking uh, previously, and I heard you mention something about not giving up too much of yourself, you know, and this idea of being a part of the group that was integrated into this high school and wanting to maintain, as you mentioned, even, you know, that how important that band was to you at the black high school um, and then moving into this white high school. Talk to us a little bit about your your mindset and how you don't want to give up too much of who you are in those other spaces and, and what became a really white space for you and your brother. You have a culture, and in a lot of different ethnicities, you keep that culture at home. And then when you walk out the front door, you you make a change. You a change. You make a change so that you can assimilate into the other general culture. But you have to be the one to make up your mind how much of yourself you want to give. Mm-hmm. You know, you can give up everything and you can try to pretend that you're something that you're not and that you're someone that you're not and that's no good in the last segment the students of color who we were talking to the young students um are are activists and they became activists um after incidents that happened in their high school uh very similarly they were they were in the minority um and it's what's happening today um, kids in, in all places, you know, are, are being are being targeted. Race tensions are very high. Um, mm-hmm. What advice do you have for those young people who are watching, um, who may be one of few students of color um, assimilating or, or being at a majority at a majority school? Mm-hmm. Uh, one thing I like to um, impart to young people um, during those type of situations during these times. And that is know yourself at the beginning. Then, then being an activist organizer, if you are in that arena, then you go where the problems are. You know, if you, I tell them that if your talent, if your talent is reading, then write the best songs, uh, best words best of article. hope. Yes. You know, if it's singing, sing the best song you could possibly sing. Whatever your talent is, Use that talent, okay, to make things better. That's why I told you. Yeah. Having a talent and, and using the talent also helps you to assimilate. Yeah. Because the people in that culture appreciate excellence, mm-hmm. whatever it is that are. you do. And so, like with us in the band, we were pretty good. <laughs> what did and, you play? I played the tuba, the sousaphone. Right. <laughs> um, and my brother played the trombone. But we were pretty good. And so the other band kids accepted us because we knew what we were doing. Mm -hmm. If we had been just barely hanging on and were there just for the show, it wouldn't have worked. They would have treated us like that. Mm -hmm. But they didn't treat us like that. And we, I, I just wanted to say I had almost a similar experience in the band. I played the trombone. And we, even though my we were not going around to white schools at that time, it was all black schools, we did the same thing that you did. And uh, I was pretty good, too. 
All right. Fantastic. <laughs> You've both experienced so much and that um, there's been obstacles in your way you know, all along. Um, what keeps you motivated, kept you moving forward? It's that idea that um, it takes a lot of courage when mm-hmm. you're met with those obstacles. So when there's those positive things happening, like you were able to play in the band and they made sure that that was integrated. But I'm sure there was plenty of times when things didn't go your way, but also things, you know, for you, Mr. Armstrong, I'm sure were life-threatening. Mm-hmm. And um, what gave you that courage to continue to move forward? In my case, there was a host of things, hosts of things. Number one, uh, I would say the first uh, would be uh, the murder of Emmett Till. Um, we took that motivation and tried to use that to make change. The other thing was during my uh, just prior to my entry into the civil rights activism arena, uh, uh, people were getting killed in my area of the country simply because they attempted to vote. Okay, yeah. they wanted to vote and couldn't vote. And some people are even getting killed for talking about voting. That's hard to believe these during this particular time, but those that's an actuality. And Lamar Smith, 30 miles from my hometown, uh, Brook, he was in Brookhaven, Mississippi, killed on the courthouse lawn holding a fistful of absentee ballots he was trying to deliver. Not only him, there were other martyrs of that particular time that they gave me courage for the simple reason that I did not want their deaths to be in vain. I had to take up the cause that they attempted to deliver it to us and move it forward. And uh, uh, I had friends who felt the same way, and uh, we wouldn't let nothing stop us. One of the things you talked about in your book, mm-hmm. um, about some of the things that you're most... <clears throat> proud of or, or your most your biggest achievements were surviving your experiences <laughs> yeah just surviving your experiences yeah. because it took an incredible amount of courage yeah. to step into those scenarios can you talk about you know one of those experiences that are that are most memorable to you near the end actually of the freedom rider uh, session there december 61 in fact in fact, uh, December 1st, 1961, I was asked along with a stu- uh, uh, college um, mate of mine to go to a little town uh, called Macomb, Mississippi, and pick up Freedom Riders that was coming into Macomb from Louisiana. And, uh, well, the procedure is you go and you talk to the law enforcement officials, in that particular case, the chief of police. We met with him and we asked for uh, protection for the Freedom Riders uh, that were coming in. Uh, in about 30 minutes from that particular time, he could not offer or did not give us any protection. He wouldn't promise any, didn't promise any to us, the Freedom Riders, or anyone else. Well, the bus came around the corner, five, six, six, six Freedom Riders, uh, all black, uh, exited the bus right near the door, okay, of the station. They walked into the station. Uh, my uh, schoolmate, MacArthur Cotton and I were there to meet them, of course. And MacArthur goes into the station with them. I stay outside to monitor the situation. Believe it or not, there were nobody on the street. 
It was completely bare except one policeman at one end and one at the other. That was strange. Okay, after about four minutes of them being into that all-white waiting room, the doors of the nearby businesses around there open up, and so people just flooded out with bricks, bats, sticks, and everything else, you know. And uh, so it appeared to me, I was standing near the entry of the station, it appeared to me that they were coming in that direction, but they didn't. They, they stopped. At three doors down from the station, businesses down from the station, there were three time life photographers taking pictures. They beat them up unmercifully, threw them through the store window after they finished beating them. And uh, by that time, the chief of police came out of the pool hall where he was hiding. And he came out, and it's just lucky lucky for us you know i was able to go into the station and tell my friend MacArthur cotton let's go let's get them out of here as things are happening on the outside and so we were able to bring them out and the chief of police had a change of heart uh the when he saw the people beating up those freedom riders, uh, my MacArthur and i i think MacArthur got hit a couple of times i didn't even get a scratch on me Amazingly enough, and uh, the chief of police, as I said, had a change of heart and led us through the crowd. The local newspaper editor said that there were more than 400 people out there with all kind of uh, things to uh, bring harm to people. Mm -hmm. And what I like to tell young people also today is find yourself a song, find yourself a poem or something. That's going to take you through those troubled times. When I was in the midst of hateful mobs and so forth, my song was Precious Lord, Take My Hand. That song would come to me, and it come to me in a whole lot of fashion. It brought me closer to my faith, but by the same token, I really wanted to get out of that situation right. that I was in. Right. You know? and, uh, so uh, find yourself something that's yep. going to carry you through. The hard times, yes. With the murder of George Floyd, I think a lot of these feelings are coming back up for folks who have been activists since the 60s. So, Mr. Freeman, as you think about what's happening in, in protests and rallies right now, what about this sounds and feels familiar to what you experienced in the past and, and in comparison to what's happening right now? It brought to mind the way I felt back in 91 when Rodney King had gotten beaten. Mm -hmm. It was all on video. So everybody just assumed that because it was on video that the policemen were going to be convicted and then they weren't. The feeling deep in your stomach that you, you got then, it just, I mean, it just <laughs> makes you want to throw something. It really does. <laughs> because you're like, this is still going on, like in the 60s. You know, it was going on way before then, but we were around in the 60s. And then here it is, the 90s, and I have two young children, and it's still going on. You, you felt like that. And now with this one, with George Floyd, just the arrogance and the nonchalant look that that policeman had, his glasses were up on his head, mm -hmm. so he obviously hadn't been in any kind of tussle 
Otherwise, there's no way those glasses would have stayed up there. And he was just basically looking into the camera, putting pressure on his neck. Yeah. He didn't care who knew. Mm-hmm. And that arrogance just really, it, it makes your blood boil. It, it just does. It really does make you want to do things. And I'm glad we have the young people like we did back mm-hmm. in the 60s that are willing to be the foot soldiers. Mm-hmm. Because back then, the young people were the foot soldiers, but the older people backed them up because oh, yeah. there were black landowners that yeah. would put their land up as collateral to get them out of jail. So it was a group effort. It really was. And we need the same group effort now in order to keep this thing moving. How important is allyship, uh, particularly from white people, in, in terms of making progress and getting behind <clears throat> these movements and, and supporting, in, in particularly in Black Lives Matter, as we, as we move forward now? I can remember back as a member of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee uh, organization uh, when uh, we at first had an assimilation of black and white uh, combined. Uh, in fact, we had 436 freedom rights. Half of them were Caucasian, half were black. And we needed that Caucasian race, those sympathetic individuals, to support us. Yeah. I think that it has to be a group effort. It That's the whole thing we're trying to do is to unify the United States. <laughs> and the only way you're going to unify it is people working together. Working together. And without the... The various races, and we actually have people all over the world working right now, which is fantastic. But you'll you'll never get it done just by yourself. You need to to have a unified effort and a group effort and work together and be as harmonious as you possibly can. Yes, there's going to be there's going to be splits, but you still need to have one single purpose and goal. Single purpose, allyship. We appreciate you both joining us. We're going to take a little band break and we'll be right back on Finding Common Ground. Stay informed with NCTV 17 News Update. These free videos sent straight to your email summarize the latest information and show you what's happening around town. Visit nctv17.com slash subscribe to sign up now. Welcome back to Finding Common Ground, where we are back with our freedom writer, Mr. Thomas Armstrong, and our young local activist, India Smith-Johnson. India, what has impacted or inspired you by the activists who have come before you? I think a lot of it is learning from what everyone has done before me and seeing that they did it. You know, they they went through similar things to what we're going through. And they I mean, they were activists. They were someone to look up to and someone to you know, work off of and see things that we can do differently to get higher levels of success. Can you tell us a little bit about Mr. Armstrong, you know, what your what your platform is and um, how you inspire the young people that you that you speak to? 
Well, hopefully, <coughs> I inspired them uh, to go out and make change. Um, first of all, I let them know that um, during the 60s, there were 70,000 individuals who have tried to affect change. They were not unlike you. Whatever they did, you can do. These days, you can even do it better. The other thing is, you mentioned that you um, like to sing. Sing words of hope. Sing words of hope. And through your singing, who knows who you can inspire. Uh, I'd like to uh, tell young people, as I said before, you know, you can do anything that you want to do in terms of change. Just have the courage, take the time to study. The change that you want to make, don't go arbitrarily to make that change. Study the situation, learn about it. When we did picketing at any particular cooperation, we knew a heck of a lot about that cooperation before we went out there to do it. Okay, we didn't just jump up and say, we're gonna march against something today, okay? Study, uh, learn, educate yourself, but not only that, educate your core partners, okay? As to what's going on and why you want to do it. Second thing, know yourself, know yourself. Um, know what you want to do, okay? And don't necessarily follow someone else, okay? Make up your mind in, in your head. Know what you want to do. If you don't want to follow a particular path, don't, okay? But if your path is singing or reading, if it's reading, read the best you can. If it's writing, write words of hope. As you see all of these young folks, protesting. Yeah. How does how does that make you feel? Oh, what do you, make what do you me, feel inside? Make me wish my feet didn't hurt. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness. Oh I, I love it. Yes. Come on feet. <laughs> yes, uh, I, I I felt good. Okay. I, I really did. And I, I'd like to thank you. I appreciate what you are doing. Okay. And keep in mind that you have a lot of support out here. Of what you're doing and uh, continue and uh, once you've taken the path okay to become an activist it never leaves you it will stay with you the rest of your life and you will forever be an activist and what I'd like to offer to you in that path uh, uh, community activists I had a social studies instructor his name was John Salters John Salters, I give the information to her, but his name is John Salters. We call him Bear, Hunter Bear, okay? Tremendous organizer, tremendous community organizer. That's where we all learn from. And uh, he has an extensive website, and I would get that information to you, and I, I suggest that you read through it as much as you can. It's huge, okay? You won't finish, but <laughs> look up the things that you need to know. Yeah. Okay. Indy, I think it's so important for you to understand how many people you have touched and inspired 
by the work that you're doing. And I think you're just beginning, which I think is incredible. I think it's awesome that people like Mr. Armstrong, you know, us, you know, we're watching and we're so inspired by the work that you do. And you should be so proud of that. Thank you. Um, of course. Mr. Armstrong, mm -hmm. can you tell us a little bit about what inspired you when you were India's age? Um, mm -hmm. Not too long ago, right? No, it wasn't that not too long ago. <laughs> but uh, what inspired you? Who yeah. were your motivators at that time? It took a little time, but when I was 13 years old, uh, I used to love the blues. Okay, when I was a kid, 12 years old, 13, love the blues, girl. Ooh. But anyway, we had one old Phil Cole radio. And I take that radio and put it under the cover and listen to the blues at night because daddy hated the blues. <laughs> I couldn't let him hear me, all right? Wonder if I didn't burn the house down. But anyway, one day, uh, one night I listened too long. We had bus transportation to school in the morning. I, I stayed up too late and missed the bus, okay? I was a quarter mile from the center of my little community and I knew I could get a ride to five miles away where my high school was, but I did that. Uh, okay, the guy dropped me off in front of an ice cream parlor, okay? I had another quarter mile to walk to school. Ah, uh, there was an ice cream parlor there. Nine o'clock in Mississippi is hot, man. Okay, so I'd walk over there and get that ice cream, ask for a comb of vanilla ice cream. He said, what's the matter, boy? Can't you read? I said, of course I can read. I had an armful of books. And uh, he said, well, read that sign over there. And that sign said, white only, okay? Took his thumb, pointed around to the side window. Go around there, go around there. There was a steel drum there, half filled with garbage, swarming with flies. I immediately turned around and walked a quarter mile to my high school where my cousin was the principal. I waited outside his office. I didn't even go to class. I waited outside his office till he was free. He came out. What's the problem? I told him what had happened. And he said, don't worry too much about it. We will not frequent that place, uh, that establishment anymore. That was my first overt connection with racism, mm. uh, okay? And it kind of, it, it put something on my mind, okay? Mm. Then I began, see, most of my relatives in my area were teachers or educators, you might say. And many times they met in my house on the weekend to discuss matters of concern. I was small, they wouldn't let me in, so I stood behind the door. Okay, and I listened to all what was going on in the community. Who got beat up today? Who got killed today? Who lost their farms today? Okay, all that kind of stuff. And that kind of stayed on my mind when I got to Tukulu College. Okay, I just got lucky to have a social study, another social study teacher who was a German, who had escaped from Nazi Germany. Okay, all of the trouble there. And he used to tell me all the time, you looking for freedom? You, it's not looking for you. You gotta go get it. You know? And that stuck with me. And that's, I joined up. I had another, I, I attended a mass meeting in Jackson, Mississippi one night with another co, uh, student. Mega Everest, my mentor, happened to uh, be facilitating that particular meeting, and he brought up the fact in my home county, 1,000 individuals was taken off the voter registration roll simply because they were black. Yeah. Okay? Then when he had called for people to help him replenish those roles, I felt like I didn't have a choice. 
Okay, so that's how I really got involved in the civil rights movement. What are what are some of your goals? We talk about talking to legislatures that are affecting change. What are those big goals that you're thinking about that you want to be a part of? Uh, well, I want to see qualified immunity abolished. I don't want to see it anymore. Um, I want the police union dismantled and rewritten, and I want all of those contracts renegotiated because it's incredibly difficult to fire and reprimand cops that are doing less than their job. Um, those, I mean, those are the two big things that I really, really want to get pushed because I feel like right now legislators are they're listening and then there's so many different messages coming at them right now. Like there isn't really, there isn't one big defined statement. Um, I know there's a lot, um, there's a big one going in Chicago, um, but I feel like the people that are from here feel like Naperville doesn't have the same issues, so they can't have the same type of blanket statements, but it's not true. Right. So that's, that's another thing that I wanna see is like from the legislative level, that type of reform. And there also needs to be community reform as well because this community isn't, it, it feels like they still need eye opening. Mm -hmm. I think people are listening and, and they're certainly paying attention. What's one way that some of the older generations can support you and, and other young people in, in your objectives? Um, there, I mean, <laughs> there's a lot of different ways. Yeah. Um, I mean, if, if you're talking about supporting the movement, period, I mean, there's things like joining the NAACP, um, protecting commerce and actually controlling where you're spending your money, like spending your money at places that have done racist things and not have, like given any sort of statement about it, you know, bringing those things to light, that's important too. Um, as for supporting the kids specifically, I mean, the types of posts and things that like I have been seeing on Facebook and like the comment sections are disgusting. Right. Um, so going in and correcting fellow adults from saying that things like these kids need to go get a job. They're not, they don't know what they're talking about. They, you know, they're so lazy getting, which is, that's my favorite comment. They're so lazy when we're literally out protesting. Yeah. Um, it's things like that checking themselves and, you know, reining each other in and saying, Hey, this is counterproductive and I don't care. Like you. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of us older folks, a lot of them, uh, you will find that really, uh, don't understand what you're doing. Okay. And you are going to have to continue to reach out. Okay and talk to these people and try to find some kind of common ground, okay? And once you, once you, even if, if it's minuscule, I mean, it's real small, seize up on that, okay? And try to make, make it uh, a better mm -hmm. for you, okay? Another one of my goals too is to educate people. Yes. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's so much information that people don't know that I definitely didn't know until I started getting into this arena. One, like one of the facts that I like to say wherever I speak is right now, if you sue a police officer, you, the, the city pays that lawsuit. The city pays that fine. We are literally the city. So we are paying those fines. So if you're suing a police officer, you're paying the lawsuit mm -hmm. in, in a sense. Mm -hmm. That's something that I hate personally and that I want to see gone. Um, 
So educating people on information like that, because when I say that to people, their blood boils because that's right. awful. And it's things that have been going on under people's noses that they don't even know about. So educating people on stuff like that is mm -hmm. super important to me as well. We had the same problem with what we call the Mississippi State Sovereignty Commission, which was a spy organization mm -hmm. that spied on anybody who stepped beyond that realm of segregation, okay? In fact, there are 27 pages of, on me in that particular thing that they uh, spied on us and, and got. But what happened was it's supported by the state, created by the state, paid for by the state. Mm -hmm. So I paid Mississippi money, okay, to spy on me mm -hmm. and give my information to the Klan people so they could harass my people. Right. You know, so, yeah. yeah. Mr. Armstrong, you were talking earlier about mm -hmm. the voter rolls, purging yes. rolls, right? Yeah. So we're coming up on what feels like one of the most important elections. Yeah. Ever. And ever, really. Yeah. And, I agree. And I mean, and with the last election uh, in 2000, presidential election, there was so much concern about things like redistricting, things like, oh, um, yeah. you know, polling places closing down. Uh, and, and that's still very much present in the conversation right now. Mm -hmm. You know, I'd like to hear from both of you, you know, where again, where do you see your place in this conversation? And and what what things do you want to see happen as we roll into this election season? Okay, first of all, I want to get rid of all the voter ID laws. Mm -hmm. uh, secondly, early voting. Has uh, been reduced all over the country now, but state by state. Okay, that's going on now. Redistricting, um, <clears throat> redistricting. You know, uh, it's just a method for the uh, controlling party mm -hmm. to get more votes. Yeah. Okay. Uh, uh, so we we have to deal with redistricting a lot. Uh, Eric Holder, I think he was the Attorney General, I think I got that title right, under the Obama administration is now previously working to kind of correct some of the redistricting errors that are applied today. So I'm, I'm concerned about that. So my main concern now is uh, I have an organization called Foot Soldiers Journey. Uh, well, what we do, we are strictly uh, mostly and otherwise uh, associated with voting, okay, the right to vote. And we are in the process now of uh, developing uh, digital media process, uh, along with that. Prior to that, I gave uh, presentations all over the country, but Corona took care of that. <laughs> right. Well, and this will be your first presidential election you're able to vote in, correct? So that's oh, yeah. incredibly exciting, yes. right? Um, what What do you see as your role in terms of, you know, there's, there's a lot we were talking about young people and being called lazy, being called a lot of things, a lot of misconceptions and myth about what young people are doing out there in the community to affect change. Um, and one of those things is, well, young people need to get out and vote, um, as it, it, almost assuming that they don't want to or that they're not going to. Um, what, it, what are you hearing from friends, from, from students your age, um, their feelings about this upcoming election? I think that we are going to have one of the largest voter turnouts for people 18 through maybe 30 that we've mm -hmm. seen in a very long time. Um, as what I've been hearing from friends is I'm, you know, I'm voting, I'm voting. <laughs> like they want to vote. They want to have their voices heard. Um, but I, I also think that it's like the misconception of laziness, it's very hard to do something when you don't know what you're doing. It's easier to not do anything. 
Um, so a lot of it too is educating people on whether, like how, how to make their voices heard and that their vote does count if they put it in. Mm -hmm. Because a lot of times I've been talking to people and they're like, well, I mean, not my friend specifically, but, um, I, for instance, I was talking to one person and she said, well, I wasn't planning on voting this year because I feel like my vote won't count. And, you know, that's a misconception that needs to be both addressed and, you know, that narrative needs to be rewritten because that's incredibly important because your vote doesn't count if you don't put it in. That's right. And look at all the change that has effectuated from the protests, some that you've helped organize around our world, mm -hmm. all the different things that have changed, legislation that has been taken before large bodies, um, large government bodies. There's been so much by the activism, um, both now and, in, and before. Mm -hmm. And so we thank you both for joining us for this important episode. I think it's so incredibly important that people exercise the right to vote. And that is something that has not changed over the years. I think the most common way people give up their power is by thinking that they don't have any. Yes. There is a great quote from Margaret Mead, who's an anthropologist, that we should never doubt that a small group of thoughtful, committed citizens can mm -hmm. change the world. Mm -hmm. Indeed, it's the only thing that ever has. And uh, as, you know, a young activist, I remembered latching on to that quote because mm -hmm. sometimes, uh, as Elijah pointed out earlier, sometimes it's just changing one person's mind mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and other times it's really making huge change. Yeah. And in the stories that we've heard from both of you today and our other guests, what I heard is um, in, in this room that Dana mm -hmm. and I have been able to share with all of you, you have been a part of that small group of committed people who were committed to making that change and you're still doing that work and we're honored to have you on here, honored to know you, uh, and to have you being a part of that change. Yes, Andy, uh, do you understand the older folks just a little better? Yes. A little bit better? <laughs> Read the poem by Paul Lawrence Dunbar, The Mask, M-A-S-K. The Mask. Okay. This has been another episode of Finding Common Ground. We'll see you next time. Amazing. sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but